I want to tell you about an earworm that I've been struggling with. It's a prayer that we sing in the form of a song. And it is, in many ways, I think, the most iconic piece of the High Holy Days, with the exception of Kol Nidre, but everyone knows this song. It's a prayer, it's a plea. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. And there are several versions. The one that's most famous, probably, in the non-Orthodox Jewish world is Avinu Malkenu. Avinu Malkeinu. That was written by Max Janowski of Blessed Memory and recorded much better than I could ever sing by the great Barbara Streisand. And then there's the folk version. Avinu Malkeinu. Which is also sung in synagogues and which, by the way, the rock band Fish often sings in concerts, which my sons would say is almost totally random. That's crazy. So the last line goes like this. Avinu Malkenu, have compassion upon us. Ki'ain banu ma'asim, which literally means we have no worthy deeds to our credit. But I'm going to offer a mischievous mistranslation and say that ein banuma asim can also mean because we have no mices within us. We don't have any stories. Now, the word maisa, ma'ase, can mean both something that happens, an act, or it can mean a story that you're f- probably familiar with this, like a buba maisa, an old wives' tale, which always makes me crazy because there should be Zeta mices as well. There should be old men's tales. But a misa is a story. Woe to those, I have often said, who do not have any stories within them. That's the bad news. But here's the deal. This is not our problem. This is not the problem of the Jewish people. From the Religion News Service, welcome. I'm Rabbi Jeff Salkin, and this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred for our guest today. We're hanging out with Dr. Nora Gold. We're going to have to talk about how we first met, but I'm going to just put it out there that I first became a fanboy of Dr. Nora Gold when I devoured her novel, Fields of Exile. We're going to talk about that later, but it's about the anti-Israel ideologies that are sweeping across the academic world, and in her case, with a unique focus on what's happening in Canada. It's about anti-Semitism on the college campus. It was a very relevant book then. It's even more relevant now, but that's not what we're going to focus on today. 18 Jewish stories translated from 18 languages. And these are not mices. These are not just stories. These are important Jewish short stories, and they were all originally published in jewishfiction.net, which is Dr. Gold's thing. You see, here's the important thing. These stories are not stories that you would read anywhere. You're not going to read these in the New Yorker. This collection totally blows out of the water the arrogant idea, we'll talk about that in a second, that Jewish culture emanates only from this continent or from Israel. This volume was an eye-opener for me, and it will be for you as well, because 
here you're going to encounter Jewish stories, and we're going to have to talk about what that means, in Russian, Ladino, Portuguese, Turkish, Danish, Yiddish, Hebrew, Greek, Romanian, French, Spanish, Hungarian, Italian, Croatian, Czech, German, Albanian, and Polish. Now, some of the authors are people that you've heard of, like the late Elie Wiesel. I just read his story, and it was just gorgeous, moved me to tears. Or Shai Agnon, uh, the Nobel Prize laureate, who really is, in some ways, the the greatest literary figure that modern Zionism created, or Isaac Babel, who is really someone that we have to talk about. But most of the authors would be new to any reader. Now, now by the way, I mentioned Isaac Babel, a great Russian-Jewish author. So here comes another pun. This book, with its collection of stories in so many languages, this is a literary Tower of Babel. Whoa, very good. <laughs> so we're hanging out with Dr. Nora Gold. She's a prize-winning author, a former social work professor, and she is the founder and editor of the prestigious online literary journal JewishFiction.net. Dr. Gold, welcome to Martini Judaism. Thank you, Rabbi Salkin, and I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We're going to have a good time today. So just give us some background. I, I'm hearing an accent. What's the accent? Well, I don't think I have an accent. People with accents never think they have accents. I'm from Montreal. I'm Canadian. People often comment on how Montreal Jews articulate differently than people elsewhere, sort of heavier on certain words or phrases like ing instead of just going. We say going. I don't hear an accent, but of course, I've been told that before. Don't know the answer. So let's reassociate to great Jewish literary figures from Montreal. You know, I've often said, I give a lecture on the Jewish roots of Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I've often spoken about Leonard Cohen's childhood, his roots in Montreal, uh, that of Mordecai Richler. Mm -hmm. It has been said that Montreal had or did have the richest Jewish culture of any city in North America, with the possible exception of New York City. True? I've heard that too. There are all sorts of names for Montreal, like the Vilna of North America, or certainly there was a very powerful and intense Yiddish cultural life and right. Jewish life in general. You know, when I was growing up, Montreal was the number one city of Canada, and now for a variety of political reasons and so forth, which actually isn't completely irrelevant to some of what we'll talk about later. Now it's Toronto, but I still have a very strong feeling for Montreal, and it's a very special place culturally, even now. How did we first become aware of each other? I was replaying this in my mind today. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a reverse Waze, W-A-Z-A, or yeah. a Google Maps how did we first come to know each other? How do we get onto each other's screens, so to speak? I think we can credit social media for that, actually. I don't think I've met that many people through social media whom we've connected with on so many levels so quickly. But I think you saw me writing about Fields of Exile and contacted me. And then I loved the things that you were doing. And we had a lot of back and forth. And that was quite some time ago. So it's wonderful that we've stayed in touch ever since. We're going to get to Fields of Exile. Do not let me forget it because mm -hmm. it was a very important book for me in my canon. Okay, 
over to 18. 18 is coming out in October. October 17th. Muzzle Tove. Muzzle Thank Tove. you. Thank you. You're going to start the new year with a new book. It's very impressive, and it's it's really an exciting book. And it's the first anthology of its kind in 25 years, and it, it obviously involved a ton of work on your part. So <laughs> what was it that made you, inspired you, drove you to undertake this major, and I got to believe, exhausting project? It was indeed a ton of work, actually. And I think maybe it's one of those projects that you're glad you didn't really understand at the beginning <laughs> when you started it, how much would be involved. You've mentioned JewishFiction.net. So all of the stories in this book were previously published in JewishFiction.net. We've published over 160 translated works in the 13 years that we've existed, which is about a third of the journal. So I've been very aware of this subset of special stories and novel excerpts in the journal. And because we have readers from around the world, we have readers in 140 countries, people have constantly been asking me to make a book of stories from JewishFiction.net, the best of JewishFiction.net. They've even given me titles. They've proposed names and content. They love this story, put in this story. To make a long story short, I ignored them. I ignored all of these suggestions because I'm a writer and anything that a writer does besides writing feels in some cases like an interference. It wasn't until a couple of years ago when I began to feel that this collection of translated works wasn't just something that I loved because I loved them, but also something of significance something of educational and cultural significance because over and over I heard that nobody had ever heard of any of these authors or had even read anything originally written in any of these languages. And at a certain point, I started to think, you know, this really should be shared with the Jewish people. And then I began to think this should be shared also beyond the Jewish people. This should be something that students of translation studies Students of world literature should know about. There's this fantastic cultural treasure, which is really unknown to not just the world, but to Jews. And this, this drove me a little crazy, actually. I kept thinking, how is it that people go around thinking when they hear the term Jewish fiction and they think, oh, Jewish fiction means American Jewish fiction. That's the first thing most people think. They might have read something translated from Yiddish or from Hebrew, but basically they think of it as an American English language phenomenon. Rarely do people even think of Canadian or British or Australian or South African, all of which have their own Jewish literatures, much less, not just not English, they don't think about the rest of the world. And actually, I opened the book with an anecdote about a really arrogant American Jewish writer. I love that anecdote. I was going to ask you about that. Oh, my God. Yeah, at a conference, basically telling these amazing, illustrious Jewish writers from around the world, writing in languages other than English, that their work is worth nothing. The only significant work is American Jewish work, you know. So that was a prompt to put this book together. And, of course, I'm very glad now that I did. You know, Dr. Gold, the story of this arrogant man 
leads me to believe that this idea is rather widespread. It is. I have a sense, and I, I need for you to just help me with this, that American Jews, North American Jews, and I'm mostly familiar with American Jews, like United Statesian Jews. Yeah. We're locked behind the gates of a cultural ghetto. And we just don't see the Judaism and the Jewish culture that's in other places. Forgive me, I don't want to... I don't want to use this term lightly because it's a trigger term. We're like bipolar, right? We've got mm-hmm. one pole in North America. Yeah. And by the yeah. way, there, narrowly New York. Yeah. And the other one in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Yeah. But as for everything else, now we lost Yiddish culture in the flames of Auschwitz. But is this a widespread idea that that there's no significant Jewish literature happening outside of those two communities? Do you encounter this other than the arrogant guy? (laughs) I think, unfortunately, it's quite widespread among Americans. Of course, it's not widespread among the people in the other cultures, you know, Greek Jews, Spanish, South American Jews, Polish Jews, people, obviously, they know their own culture. Canadian Jews are very aware, of course, of Canadian Jewish literature. But I think part of it is what happens when you are the most powerful nation on earth. It's natural to become ethnocentric. Uh, It's not surprising. And this is not, of course, to in any way diminish the incredible American Jewish literature that's been written. There's incredible, beautiful, fantastic, impressive body of work. So it's not about that. But yeah, I think one becomes a little myopic, if that's the correct term, that you just don't see you don't even think to look really. You're content with what you have. And I think I'd like this book to, you know, your podcast is about being shaken and stirred. I'd like to shake up and stir people to start looking. So let's talk about that for a second. The book is fascinating. It's fun. There are some amazing stories in there, but let's be honest, it's really provocative. And in the best sense of the word, it's disruptive. It does what we're trying to do. It shakes and stirs us. That's why we're talking here. In fact, what we're doing here is we are adding another alchet, another sin to the list that we have to atone for on Yom Kippur. Alchet shechatanu lefanecha for the sin. I'm now beating my chest that we have committed before you by believing that our Judaism is the only Judaism that we can see. So was it your intention to shake us and to challenge us when you created this book? And if it was, or even if it wasn't, what impact do you want this book to have? Well, you know, like most things in life, there's things you're conscious of and things you're unconscious of. I don't think I set out originally to cause a stir or to provoke or to shake things up. But as I was putting it together and seeing people's reactions, I got more and more angry and annoyed and deeply troubled by hearing over and over and over again that there's nothing really of value beyond, you know, American Jewish literature and a little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of Yiddish, maybe a bit of Ladino. So by the time I found a publisher, and I have a wonderful publisher, really, Kolakavod to Academic Studies Press, I was aware that this book was going to be a front and a provocation. And I'm happy about it. I would be delighted if, in fact, this book challenged the way many people think about Jewish fiction, if it exposed them 
to works and not just the works themselves, but the works as indications of what else exists in other languages and countries, if it expanded their minds and it opened their hearts, you know, you talk about us being in Elul and in a very important time of year. It's an important time for the Jewish people. So I think it's a very challenging time for the Jewish people. And I don't know if this is my social work background or just my love of being Jewish or some combination thereof, but I would love for this book to be a kind of commonplace where Jews could come together and love and appreciate the multilingualism of our culture, the multiculturalism of our culture, the differences, the diversity between us, and to celebrate that instead of just there's one way to do Jewish, there's one way to do Jewish fiction, there's one way for everything, but to really start listening to each other and getting to know each other. And some may say that's utopian or naive, but I think one has to hope that that's possible because that's the only way that our people is going to remain a people, in my view. We'll be right back. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. And we're back. I'm Rabbi Jeff Salkin. Welcome back to Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred from Religion News Service. And we're talking today with Dr. Nora Gold. She is a major literary figure. She has a new collection called 18 Jewish Stories Translated from 18 Languages. Let no one mistake the fact that there is a mathematical reference in there. <laughs> 18 is high, and this is about life. Definitely. So, all right, we're getting into the days of awe, the high holy days. We're getting into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Jewish tradition is very much front and center in our minds. And... You know, it's interesting to me, as I read through some of the stories, I have to say to you, and I'm, I know that you know this, is that Judaism, the Jewish tradition, appears in these stories in many different ways, mm -hmm. and sometimes in a very positive way, and sometimes in a critical way, in a somewhat edgy way. Is there a story, I'm wondering, that combines both of those elements? And I'd like to know how it's critical of this tradition that we love. Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Rabbi Salkin. I think the story that epitomizes this complexity for me is the story, The Guest. And this is a story set at a Pesach, a Passover Seder in the year 1940. It's gorgeously written. It's full of beautiful, beautiful details about the dishes that are served, the way the table is set, everything is sparkling and great descriptions of the people around the table, especially her grandfather who presides over the Seder like a king with such great dignity, you know? Mm 
So there is this intense love of our tradition, the beauty of our rituals, our practices, our holidays. And then something happens in the story. And I'm not going to say what, because I wouldn't want to give your listeners a spoiler. I don't want to ruin it. But something happens. And it's painful. And it's, a, to me, a brilliant evocation, really, of how religious tradition, when combined with patriarchy, can have devastating effects on the life of a woman or a girl. It packs a real punch even though it's written in this intensely beautiful and descriptive manner. And even though it's set in the past, it's set over 80 years ago, unfortunately, it still has, I think, resounding relevance today. Are there topics that you wish Jewish fiction writers would deal with and engage that you haven't seen yet? What's the next wave of subjects that are going to emerge, I want to say from the Jewish pen, but really from the Jewish laptop? That's a wonderful question. I think part of the way people see Jewish fiction is that it is asexual, non-confrontational, apolitical, not controversial. I think once you read more broadly than the famous names, you know, the 10 or 15 top names that one thinks of in American Jewish fiction. And even there, I'm not implying that they don't contain those elements. But there's really nothing missing. I think what's missing is our grasp of how crazy in the best sense, and how subversive, and how passionate and imaginative and strange Uh, some of this literature is. I mean, one of the stories, just on the topic of strangeness, there's a story in the book called Purimspiel. And it's about someone who is going out to buy homentaschen and ends up in India, you know, as in Star Trek, you know, she's been beamed in time and space to another world. And it was a mistake of the angel Michael who did something wrong. And, you know, that's about as, as whimsical and fantastical and unusual as one could expect. This is from a Croatian writer, Jasminka Domas. So I can't think of anything, actually, that's not already there. But your question is an excellent one because just because it's there doesn't mean it's known. I think there's a huge body of literature that's unknown, that's really different than the literature we're already familiar with. So much of Jewish fiction and literature has been, Dr. Gold, I think, falsely embedded in nostalgia. Hmm. And what I see your work doing is prying us out of the shackles of nostalgia. Hmm and pointing us to a different future. Now, that's a lovely thing to say, Rabbi Salkin. It's interesting you raise this because I just came back from Israel and at a Friday night dinner, there was a fascinating discussion about the uses and misuses of our historical past. Oh gosh, tell me. Yeah, this is something that really, really troubles me and it troubled these wonderful people all around the table. The idea that Some people, many people perhaps, romanticize what life in the shtetl was like. It was a very hard and terrible life in many, many ways. I'm not going to go into more detail than that. 
And people will take from the past what they think will serve them. You know, the whole contemporary Yiddish movement, which, you know, Yiddish is in those circles is very much not dead. There's a hugely alive Yiddish cultural movement, which people will dress the way people dressed at a certain point, uh, Yiddish speaking people dressed. And in fact, this is an interesting sort of example where someone at the table was saying that his family is Orthodox and they assumed that all the relatives who came over from Poland were Orthodox until they came to New York. And New York made them cut off the pais and become, if not apikoirisim, at least less, less observant religiously. And then this person found a photograph of his father and, and siblings in Poland walking down the street without pais. And the family was outraged. No, no, they must have been tucked under his hat. You could look at the picture. There were no payas. So I think some people have a vested interest in idealizing and using for certain purposes the Jewish past. And of course, that's the European Jewish past. There are also Mizrahi Jewish past. There are many different Jewish pasts. The same way people in their personal lives will take an incident from the past and use it to justify or to give them an identity for the present or future. And I think as someone who cares about historical truth and reality, I find that really problematic. It's not that there in this collection in 18, there are no stories that showcase the beauty of the past. But I don't think any of them play games with it or play tricks with it. You know, the story we just discussed, the guest is an, an example of that, that, yes, it was beautiful and amazing, and it also wasn't good for girls and women. So I really have respect for that kind of truth. We do make the Jewish past through popular culture mm-hmm. and middlebrow culture prettier than it really yeah. was. I always like to remind people that... you. You might like Fiddler on the Roof, but those pogroms were real, they were lethal, and those were not nice people. (laughs) That's the understatement. They didn't dance that much either. So let's talk about the literary elephant in the room, Mm -hmm. which is a previous work of yours. You're the editor of this important anthology. You're the founder and editor of the literary journal, jewishfiction.net, but you're also... In your own right, you're a very highly regarded writer. You've won two Canadian Jewish Literary Awards. Your books have been widely praised, including praises by Cynthia Ozick, who, by the way, just turned 95 years old, wrote a column about Cynthia, right? I know. And Alice Munro. I do want to hear about your own writing, but in particular, I want to talk about the book of yours that I think is a must read. And that's about fields of exile, which is about anti-Israel mania. And I do call it a mania that is sweeping the academic world as you've experienced it in Canada. Can you give us a synopsis, tell us a story and tell us what you learned and what you're trying to teach? Hmm. Great question. Well, a brief synopsis is that a young Canadian woman makes Aliyah and comes back to Canada to get a master's degree in social work. She's left-wing, a left-wing Zionist, someone who loves Israel and is critical of certain things happening there. And she thinks that in the left-wing 
social work community, which she joins as a student, she will fit in and be understood and accepted. And there's a scene at the beginning where she, you know, there's that go around and she presents herself as someone working for Jewish Palestinian peace and everyone's very impressed. But in the course of the year, basically, she has to confront the very powerful anti-Israel forces at her university with increasing ugliness. And one of the issues for her is where do you draw the line between legitimate critique of Israel and anti-Semitism? Where does one stop and the other begin? And the book doesn't tell you what to believe. It just shows you where she begins to draw the line and how she begins to understand that these people are not objecting to the occurrences in Israel that she finds problematic. They are anti-Semitic. And it is a harrowing journey that she endures. Now, when I wrote that book, I don't know if you know what the publishing industry is like, unless you're someone like Cynthia Ozick or Alice Munro, but it's hard to find a publisher for your books. And it took me seven years to write the book and then a bunch of years to find a publisher. And during that time, I was convinced that this book was going to be so irrelevant by the time it was published that it wouldn't sell one copy, you know, just give it to my friends. And I was horrified to discover, first of all, it was the first and only novel on this topic. To this date, I think it's the only still. It's the only one that I've seen. Yeah, that it's still totally relevant. And in fact, there are organizations that hand out my book to their activists. There's a Canadian group that as it trains its pro-Israel activist group, they give them my book as a handbook. It's complicated because I intentionally made this a left-wing student. So in many ways, the book is an attack on the anti-Israel left. I don't bother attacking the anti-Israel right because I think that's self-evident. But oddly enough, this book became the darling of the Jewish right and was reviled by most of the Jewish left. So at that point, I realized there's a very thin line where I belong, a real tightrope. And actually, it led me to begin an organization for people like me, who are not just pro-Israel, but passionate lovers of Israel, but who are also critical of certain aspects of the country. That's an entire organization now in Canada. So I think I wrote the book out of an intense sense of pain. I mean, I, I had tried through activism, I tried through lecturing, I couldn't get this out of me, this, this pain. And I wrote the book as a kind of exorcism. And I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. But I wish the book were now irrelevant and not needed anymore. It's become more relevant, especially with what's going on in Israel today. And the temptation to essentially put all of those legitimate complaints and observations about Israeli policy and the government, et cetera, into a huge duffel bag and to combine them with other critiques and then to sprinkle a little bit of anti-Zionism, anti-Israelism, and anti-Semitism all over it. So what about your other books? Very briefly, could you mm -hmm. walk mm -hmm. us through those? Sure. Well, the first book was Marrow and Other Stories. That's the one that Alice Monroe loved, the title story of. 
Uh, my first novel, which we've discussed, is was Fields of Exile. Then there was a novel called The Dead Man, set in Israel, about a composer of Jewish sacred music. And that book was uh, won a Canada Council translation grant, was translated into Hebrew. Mm. So I love that it's in Hebrew. There's the book that we've been discussing, 18 Jewish stories translated from 18 languages. That's the fourth book, which, by the way, can be pre-ordered already. It's available if people want to buy it. Then this spring on March 1st, I have my fifth book coming out, which is two novellas called Yom Kippur in a Gym and In Sickness and in Health. And then I just had another book accepted for 2026, another novella. I seem to be on a novella's roll called Doubles. That'll be my sixth book. So that's it at this point. That's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. What I admire most about you is not only your literary output, but also how effectively you communicate essential Jewish messages. And in 18, the new book that will be coming out, Jewish Stories Translated from 18 Languages, you're really contributing to the Jewish conversation in a very important way, which is to liberate us from our monoculturalism. I just made that up, I think. Perfect word. That sense that our experience of the Jewish world is the only one that really counts. And I want to conclude by reminding us all that one of the images that Cynthia Ozick, who just turned 95, may she live to be 120, loved to share was the idea of blowing into the shofar. Mm-hmm. And that if you blow into the wide end of the shofar, you get no music. You have mm-hmm. to wa- blow into the narrow end. You start with yourself and it moves out into the world. But I'm going to now just I'm going to tinker with that image. But if you're only blowing into the narrow end, and if there is no wide end, then there can be no music either. Mm, That's so beautiful. In other words, we are a small people, and we are a large family. And what you're doing in 18 is you are allowing, permitting, and encouraging all the members of the Jewish family to sit at a huge table and to share stories, mices that are not mere mices, but are really sacred works of literature. As long as we are replenishing our literary treasure chest, we will live as a people. We will live as a culture. And when people say to me, Rabbi, I'm not a religious Jew. I'm a cultural Jew. Sometimes I hear I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm cultural, not religious. I'm everything but religious, okay? When they say that they're a cultural Jew, Dr. Gold, this is what I want to say to them, then get some Jewish culture. And 18 is a wonderful gateway into that culture. So we thank once again our friend, Dr. Nora Gold, and just want to let you know, 18 Jewish stories translated from 18 languages available for pre-order. We hope that you will. It's really a wonderful, wonderful work. And I invite you to follow my regular column, Martini Judaism, which is found on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. 
and some housekeeping. Our producer is Jay Woodward. And today we had a lot of help from our engineer, Elizabeth Windham. Elsie Owen keeps the engine running smoothly. And Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. And do us a favor, please, as you're entering into the new year, could you do us a mitzvah or a mitzvah, something nice? You would help us if you download the podcast. And could you leave us a five-star rating, please? Anyway, thanks again, Dr. Gold. Thanks to all of you for hanging out with us, and we'll see you again soon. Shalom. Shalom.